Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, A Very Bloody Affair. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Theaters of War. During the American Civil War, there were three main theaters. The Eastern Theater, which extended from the Atlantic Ocean to the Appalachian Mountains. The Western Theater, which covered the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River and the Trans-Mississippi, which is everything west of the Mississippi River. Now, the memory of the war will emphasize the East because of the Army of Northern Virginia under Robert E. Lee and his important victories there. But this also ignores the significance of the West. And many historians have argued, where was the war won? We all like to talk about Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox, and there is some truth to the idea that the war was won in the East, but modern historians now know that the war in the West was more successful, and it was probably won there by Union forces. But to this day, historians will disagree over whether the West or East was the most important, while mostly ignoring the Trans-Mississippi region. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Blockade. The first general-in-chief of the United States Army was our old friend Winfield Scott, the famous war hero of the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, as well as the general in charge of Indian removal in the 1830s. He had been a hero of Lee, Grant, and other officers during the Mexican-American War. He was 75 years old at the start of the Civil War, and was so fat that he needed help getting on his horse. He was one of the few generals who believed that this would be a long-lasting, costly war as opposed to the short conflict that many envisioned. Thus, Scott planned for a massive siege of the Confederacy by blockading all southern ports and strangling the southern Confederacy into submission through lack of supplies and war materiel. But the problem is that this would take too long, and by the summer of 1861, the northern public was clamoring for a quick and decisive victory, and newspapers derisively called Scott's strategy the Anaconda Plan. Now the problem with the blockade is that diplomatic relations will be tested by this, because technically, blockades are acts of war between belligerent nations. But Lincoln claims Southerners are in rebellion, and that the Confederacy is not another nation. It's sort of a logical two-step here. This is going to complicate diplomatic relations. An example of this is the Trent Affair, which happens in November of 1861. The Union Navy stopped a ship carrying Confederate diplomats, including John Slidell, who had negotiated with Mexico before the Mexican-American War. They were on their way to England, and England was very upset that the ship had been stopped. This is sort of a reverse of the War of 1812, when they stopped our ships all the time. Regardless, England moved troops to Canada, and Lincoln decided to fight one war at a time, and had the men quietly released. And this is an example of the careful balancing act Lincoln must take during the war to ensure victory. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, A Tale of Defeat. Now, the war has been going on for a few months. There have been several small skirmishes across the country, but no large-scale battle yet. This will soon change. In mid-June 1861, 22,000 Confederates under the command of Pierre, Gustave, Toutant, Beauregard were massing at Manassas Junction, Virginia, which is 25 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. There were also 10,000 Confederates under the command of Joseph E. Johnston, stationed 35 miles west of Manassas along a railroad route. Opposing them 
were 35,000 Federals under Irvin McDonough at Centerville, Virginia. Now, the Confederates knew that they were in the area because newspapers had announced it. This shows the amateurish during this part of the war, as well as the lack of censorship. On July 19th, Johnston's army started moving east on the railroad towards Manassas, and by July 21st, fighting broke out outside of the city, near Bull Run Creek. Confederates called this the Battle of Manassas, while the Federals called it the Battle of Bull Run. And typically during the war, we will see Southerners name a battle after the local town, whereas the Union names it after the local body of water. Now civilians, including congressmen and their wives, had come out to take a picnic in order to watch this battle. Both armies were dressed in various colors. Federals wore blue, gray, and red. Confederates sometimes wore blue, brown, gray, or anything else they could find. In fact, some units even dressed like Revolutionary War soldiers. During the battle, the Federals initially pushed the Confederates back. As they advanced, Colonel Thomas J. Jackson and his brigade of Virginians stomped along a crest of a hill. They poured volley after volley into the incoming Federals. As they stood firm, a Confederate general saw them and yelled to his men, Look, men, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally behind the Virginians. End quote. And for henceforth, Jackson will be given the nickname Stonewall. As Jackson held the Union tide back, Joseph Johnston's Confederate reinforcements showed up in the nick of time and helped turn the tide of battle. The Federals fled haphazardly towards D.C., as did all of the naive civilians. They created a bottleneck, and the panic ensued as soldiers threw their arms and equipment away, trying to get away from the field of battle as quick as their legs could take them. The battle ended in Confederate victory, and the United States suffered 3,000 casualties and the Confederacy 2,000 casualties. Up to that point, it was the bloodiest day in American history. The Confederate victory refueled the stereotypes of a manly South and a soft North. But the Confederate leadership made a critical mistake here. They did not follow up the victory and attempt to lay siege to Washington. It was an opportunity squandered, and thus the war would go on. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Young Napoleon. On July 27, 1861, Abraham Lincoln replaced McDowell with George B. McClellan. Lincoln ultimately forced Winfield Scott into retirement, and on November 1st, he appointed McClellan General-in-Chief. So now this young officer, nicknamed the Young Napoleon, was not just the commander of the Army of the Potomac, but also the General-in-Chief of all United States armies. He was a brilliant young strategist. McClellan had been an observer of the Crimean War in Russia, and he had learned sieges were key. He also understood that battles meant lots of death. He was an expert at army training and organization. Little Mac stood about five foot, hence his title, Young Napoleon in Little Mac. He was a pro-slavery Democrat who did not want to destroy slavery or change the country. He merely wanted to return the Union to the status quo antebellum. However, he had a critical character flaw. He was an obsessive compulsive. He was always hesitant to move his troops to fight, much to Lincoln's dismay. And he always mistakenly believed that he was outnumbered when in fact he usually outnumbered the Confederates at least two to one. He was an extremely vain and self-absorbed man, and he acted terribly towards Lincoln. He once said, quote, I find myself in a new and strange position here, the President, the Cabinet, and General Scott all deferring to me, 
and by some strange operation of magic, I seem to have become the power in the land. I almost think that if I were to win some small success now, I could become dictator, or anything else that might please me. But nothing of that kind would please me. Therefore, I won't become dictator. Admirable self-denial. End quote. Liss illustrates McClellan's deep-seated ambition, as well as his vanity. But his attitude towards Lincoln is best encapsulated in the quote, I went to the White House shortly after tea where I found the original gorilla, about as intelligent as ever. What a specimen to be at the head of our affairs now. End quote. McClellan was a bit of a dick. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Out West. In the Trans-Mississippi Theater, on August 10, 1861, Union and Confederate forces clashed at Wilson's Creek, Missouri. Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyon commanded the Union Army of the West with 5,430 men against Brigadier General Sterling Price's Missouri Guard and General Ben McCulloch's Western Confederate Army of 12,120 men. Missouri was a very divided border state, and Lincoln considered it key. The two sides clashed over high ground near Springfield, Missouri, and during the combat, General Lyon was mortally wounded, and another general, Sturgis, organized the Union withdrawal to the nearby city. Price and McCulloch's Confederates were too disorganized and exhausted to make an effective pursuit. This was yet another Confederate victory, but the failure to pursue the defeated army would have profound consequences in the coming campaign. As a result of the battle, the Union lost 1,300 casualties to the Confederate 1,230 casualties, nearly 25% of the combined armies. A staggering amount of death. Union strategy in the Western theater was to seize control of the Confederacy's important rivers, especially the Mississippi, Cumberland, and Tennessee rivers. These rivers could be used as highways to shepherd American ships and troops into the Confederacy. The Western Theater is where Ulysses S. Grant will become famous. He was a West Point graduate and a Mexican War veteran who had quit the Army in 1854 to farm and then later serve as an apprentice in his father's tannery. He was not a drunk, but he did smoke 20 cigars per day, which would have profound health consequences later in life. Grant ordered his army to move against Fort Henry on the Tennessee River and Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River. He was assisted by seven steam-powered gunboats, and on February 6, 1862, Grant's 15,000 Federals and gunboats persuaded the 100 Confederates inside of unfinished Fort Henry to surrender. Grant then moved the 10 miles overland to Fort Donelson, where his force of 27,000 men assembled. Fort Donelson was protected by heavy guns and 21,000 Confederates. This was a tough nut to crack, so Grant laid siege to the fort. The Confederates came out and attacked, and actually broke a hole in Grant's lines at one point, but disagreement among Confederate commanders prevented them from taking the advantage. Two Confederate generals, along with several thousand soldiers, then left the fort. The Confederate commander, Simone B. Buckner, an old army buddy of Grant, asked his friend for acceptable terms. Grant replied that he would only accept unconditional and immediate surrender. With little options left, Buckner decided to surrender. As a result, the United States Army took 15,000 Confederate prisoners, 20,000 muskets, 65 cannons, and thousands of horses. 
This was a huge Union victory. Kentucky was now safely in Union hands, and Tennessee had been opened up for invasion. The Northern Press dubbed U.S. Grant Unconditional Grant. There's one more battle out west I want you to know. The largest battle fought in Arkansas happened just north of here, at a place called Pea Ridge. It is a wonderfully preserved battlefield, and I recommend seeing it sometime. At the Battle of Pea Ridge, Earl Van Dorn's Confederates faced off against Samuel R. Curtis's U.S. forces. Van Dorn had been a cavalry commander, so he marched his troops in the midst of winter to attack Union forces. Their march was quick, which meant they had to leave behind their food, ammunition, and winter clothing, and they had terrible suffering in the frigid weather. Van Dorn launched a massive assault on the first day, but it was uncoordinated, and though the Confederacy did well initially, on the second day, the Union forces arranged a massive battle line with plenty of cannon and swept the Confederates from the field. As a result of the battle, the U.S. Army lost 203 killed and 980 wounded, with another 200 missing. The Confederates lost over 2,000 combined casualties. This battle had profound strategic consequences, as it left southern Missouri and northwest Arkansas in Union hands for the rest of the war. Another major battle I want you to know about is Shiloh, which is near a railroad junction above Corinth, Mississippi. Grant and his army had moved south down the Tennessee River, and 40,000 Federals were encamped near the Shiloh Methodist Church near Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee. Confederate troops were led by the overall commander of all Confederate forces in the West, Albert Sidney Johnson, viewed as perhaps one of the best commanders in the entire Confederacy. On April 6, 1862, 44,000 Confederates came up from Corinth and attacked and caught the Federals by surprise. They sent the Federals fleeing backwards towards the Tennessee River. However, the Federals put up a spirited stand in several points, particularly the Sunken Road, otherwise known as the Hornet's Nest, where thousands of Confederates attacked and were pushed back time and time again. It was only with several dozen cannon that managed to blow apart the Union position, which forced some Federals to surrender and others to retreat back towards the river. However, U.S. forces were eventually buoyed by 25,000 reinforcements on April 7th from Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio. When they attacked at daylight, they drove the Confederates back in confusion. The casualties on both sides were more than all previous battles combined. At the Battle of Shiloh, 10,700 Confederates and 12,500 Federals were killed or wounded. Bloody Shiloh awakened many to the horrors of the war, which by this time had lasted one year. The war would go on for at least another three, and more than a dozen battles of Shiloh's size and destruction would take place. Shiloh is a Hebrew word meaning place of peace. Please advance to the next slide entitled Trouble in the Confederacy. As a result of these Confederate defeats and casualties, the Confederacy had a serious manpower issue. There were not enough volunteers to fill the ranks, and enlistments might soon run up on the men already enlisted in the Confederate Army. So on April 16, 1862, the Confederacy enacted the First Conscription Act. This required all able-bodied men, 18 to 35 years old, to serve for three years in the Confederate Army. Those already serving 
many of them who had originally enlisted for only 6 to 12 months had their enlistments extended for three years. Many Confederate soldiers were upset by this. Tennessee Private Sam Watkins wrote, quote, From the time on till the end of the war, a soldier was simply a machine, a conscript. It was mighty rough on rebels. We cursed the war. We cursed Bragg. We cursed the Southern Confederacy. All of our pride and valor had gone, and we were sick of war in the Southern Confederacy. End quote. As Union armies drove into the Confederacy, African Americans saw their opportunities and began to self-emancipate themselves by running away with their families or alone towards Union lines. With many men gone, Union armies began occupying towns in the area, and African Americans seeking freedom ran to these occupied centers. The Southern Home Front was wrought with massive changes, which we will discuss in our next lecture, but suffice it to say that deprivation and dissatisfaction emerged as the war was fought on the backs of women and the poor. Meanwhile, other Union forces moved down the Mississippi River, while another Union squadron entered the river's mouth. By the end of April, a Union squadron under the command of Admiral David Farragut captured New Orleans, the single largest city in the Confederacy. New Orleans remained under military occupation for the duration of the war, significantly hurting the Confederacy's war effort. A Union politician and general, Ben Butler, became the commandant of the city, and he became angry when local southern women were extremely hostile to his men, who refused to walk on the same street as them, sneered, insulted, and in some cases dumped their chamber pots from the windows on the heads of soldiers and officers alike. Fed up by this, Butler issued his infamous Women's Order on May 15, 1862. It stated, quote, as officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women calling themselves ladies of New Orleans in return for the most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter any female, by word, gesture, movement, or show of contempt to any officer or soldier of the United States, shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town, applying her avocation." End quote. In other words, Butler was saying that women who did this were prostitutes engaged in solicitation. The order had its desired effect. Women stopped insulting his men, but all over the South, newspapers decried Beast Butler and his inhumanity towards the ladies of New Orleans. And this episode illustrates several things for us. The changing notion of gender roles, the issues of military occupation, and what loyalty and reconstruction will look like in the war's aftermath. By the summer of 1862, the only major stronghold on the Mississippi River that the Union did not control was Vicksburg, Mississippi, and it would remain free for another year, until U.S. Grant had something to say about that. Please advance to the next slide entitled, McClellan's Plan. Back in the East, in March 1862, Lincoln removed General McClellan as general-in-chief, so the general could focus on campaigning with his Army of the Potomac in order to get moving. In early April, Mack finally moved, and his plan was to capture Richmond from the south, inaugurating his Peninsula Campaign. More than 100,000 Union troops landed at Fortress Monroe, 75 miles southeast of Richmond, on the James Peninsula. There were only 15,000 Confederates 
laying between McClellan's force and Richmond. But Mack moved too slowly. He spent a month besieging Yorktown, where only 10,000 rebels were stationed. The rebels made a great show of it, marching around in circles and making it look like they had more troops than McClellan did. McClellan, in his intelligence, estimated the rebel strength at 100,000 men, which just shows a gross failure of military intelligence. Meanwhile, Joseph E. Johnston had mustered 42,000 Confederates to protect Richmond around the city. Eventually, Little Mac moved up the peninsula and met Johnston at the Battle of Seven Pines, six miles from Richmond. The Confederates won, but Johnston was severely wounded in the action. So Jefferson Davis ordered Robert E. Lee to take command of the army, which he now designated the Army of Northern Virginia. This was the first army that Lee ever commanded, and it would become the most famous of all Confederate armies. Lee summoned Stonewall Jackson's 18,000 troops from the Shenandoah Valley, and from June 25th to July 1st, he engaged in a series of bloody battles called the Seven Days. Lee's army smacked McClellan over and over again in a desperate attempt to save Richmond. And on the final day at Malvern Hill, Lee attacked uphill and lost more than 5,000 men. The Union had suffered in total 15,700 casualties, including 1,700 killed. The Confederacy had won the campaign despite suffering over 20,000 casualties, including more than 3,000 killed. Confederate General Daniel H. Hill, who later became the president of the University of Arkansas, remarked, quote, It was not war, it was murder. End quote. This is a theme going forward. The Confederacy will usually suffer lower numerical but higher proportional losses, which will doom its war effort. On July 1st, Little Mac retreated, despite his staffers' recommendations to counterattack, and Union morale plummeted. Little Mac, the supposed savior of the Union, had failed to end the war once again. As a result, Lincoln appointed Henry Halleck as the new Union General-in-Chief, while Little Mac continued to command the Army of the Potomac, at least for a few days. One thing was made perfectly clear in the Seven Days Battles. Slave labor was a great value to the Confederacy, as slaves did most of the fatigue duty, cooking, cleaning, and building of fortifications. This meant white soldiers were reserved for battle, while slaves did all the hard work. Lincoln, and many others in the North, realized that taking away this strength would weaken the Confederacy. But Lincoln understood he had to move slowly, because of the border states, and their support for the institution of slavery. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The 37th Congress. Back in Washington, the Republican-controlled Congress was passing some of the most important legislation which would modernize America. In May of 1862, they passed the Homestead Act, which said that any head of a family could claim 160 acres for a small registration fee in an agreement to live on that land for five years. The idea was to populate the West with farmers who believed in the ideology of free soil and free men, as opposed to slavery. Also, the residency requirement was an attempt to deal with the issue of speculation. However, the problem is that the Great Plains needs more land in order to be agriculturally productive because it is drier and farmers are not up to snuff 
with the new farming techniques required for such an inhospitable environment. Also in 1862, Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act, which authorized the construction of an intercontinental railroad from Omaha to Sacramento. The government gave land to two private companies to build the lines. The Central Pacific started in Sacramento and built eastward, while the Union Pacific started in Omaha and built westward. The laborers were mostly Chinese and Irish immigrants, working for as little as $30 a month. This was very difficult and dangerous work, as Indian attacks, avalanches, snowdrifts, and other issues killed thousands and injured even more. But by May 1869, the two companies met at Promontory Summit, Utah, and drove a golden spike into the ground, signifying the connection of East and West and an intercontinental railroad. This was a very important achievement for shipping, westward expansion, and psychological reasons. Another piece of legislation I want you to know is the Internal Revenue Act of 1862. Early on in the war, the country was broke. Tariffs and land sales simply could not pay for the bills of a massive war. So by passing the Internal Revenue Act, this created the first internal tax in U.S. history and created a progressive tax of 3% on incomes between $600 and $10,000, and a 5% tax on incomes over $10,000. As a result, it increased the government's coffers by an estimated $340 million during the 10-year period it existed. It was later repealed in 1872 in response to growing dissatisfaction with Reconstruction, but still it set an important precedent. With this new money, brought in from direct taxation, Congress passed another bill, the Legal Tender Act, which created an official new currency, the Greenback. By 1865, the country had printed $500 million in paper currency, worth $7 billion today. However, there were major issues related to credit, currency value, and liquidity, which would dominate the economic issues of the 1880s and 1890s. But that is a story for another course. Also in 1862, Congress passed the Morrill Land Grant Act. This gave states blocks of public land that it could sell to raise funds for state universities. But these universities were supposed to teach practical agricultural and mechanical curriculums, as well as new farming techniques to a new generation of frontier settlers. As a result of this act, the universities of California, Illinois, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Texas A&M, and, yes, the University of Arkansas were established under this grant. The University of Arkansas was originally called Arkansas Industrial University and was founded in 1871 thanks to the Morrill Land Grant Act. So next time you hear criticism of government investment in education, remember, you attend a university thanks to those policies. But I also want to show balance here. Because while I have highlighted all the positives of these acts, there were many downsides. Speculation did occur despite the Homestead Act's design. The Transcontinental Railroad had a great deal of corruption and was environmentally destructive as well as hurting Native peoples. The mass printing of paper currency led to serious currency depreciation, which plagued the country for 30 years. Lastly, many universities failed to educate the people as they became playgrounds for the rich. 
but still this is all about balance, good and bad, history and policy, and it is important to note every side of these arguments in order to get through the BS and get at the real truth. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Road to Antietam. After the failure of the Seven Days, McClellan had many troops transferred from his army to a new commander, John Pope, in his Army of Virginia. From August 29th to the 31st, 1862, Lee and Jackson's army smashed another federal army at 2nd Manassas. Probably at no point in the Civil War did Confederate army nearly entirely destroy a U.S. army than that at 2nd Manassas. In response to the disaster, McClellan was given command of both the Army of the Potomac and Pope's survivors. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia were feeling invincible, and so Lee made a bold move. On September 1862, Lee invaded Maryland, a border slave state. He hoped to convince some Marylanders to join the Confederate cause. In addition, he wanted to take the fighting out of Virginia during the harvest season, and he wanted to threaten D.C. and make the northern public panic. Lastly, he hoped this move would convince England and France to recognize the Confederacy. But there was a problem. One of Lee's staff officers had written a copy of his orders and wrapped it in a pack of cigars and accidentally dropped it. A Union patrol found it and gave it to General McClellan, who then moved his army out to meet Lee more swiftly than normal. Lee figured something might be up and decided to make a stand near Sharpsburg, Maryland, along Antietam Creek. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Battle of Antietam. The Battle of Antietam was fought on September 17, 1862. McClellan had 87,000 troops, and Lee only had 35,000. Despite his usual cautiousness, McClellan was uncharacteristically aggressive and ordered three massive assaults on the Confederate center, left, and right. Due to officer incompetence, lost messages, and the sheer distance between Little Mac's headquarters and the front line, the Union attacks were piecemeal, meaning that they came one at a time rather than simultaneously. As a result, these attacks were unsupported, and Americans slaughtered one another in the cornfield, the West Woods, Bloody Lane, and Artillery Hell. The lack of coordination allowed Lee to concentrate his troops at points of federal attacks. So, for example, on the extreme Confederate right flank along Antietam Creek, 500 Georgians held off 12,000 Federals under the command of Ambrose Burnside for three hours. When they finally broke, reinforcements came in the nick of time, stopping a potential Confederate rout. The battle then died down, and the army stared at one another for another day before Lee withdrew in the middle of the night. The results of Antietam were very important. First, after 12 hours of intense combat, 11,600 Federals and 9,200 Confederates were killed or wounded, making it the single bloodiest day in U.S. history. Second, while technically a draw, the Federals claimed victory. But McClellan again failed to pursue, and lingered near the battlefield for several weeks, before Lincoln finally fired him for good on November 7th. Many Union soldiers were upset, but Mack just wasn't cut out for the job. Lincoln then appointed Burnside as commander of the Army of the Potomac, which would lead to a devastating tragedy. Most importantly, five days after the battle, on September 22nd, 
Lincoln issued his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Antietam was not the smashing victory that Lincoln had hoped for, but it was close enough. With this victory in hand, he was able to declare, quote, All persons held as slaves within any state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be, thenceforth, and forever free. End quote. Now, this technically did not free slaves in the border states, where Lincoln believed he didn't have the constitutional authority to do so. But it was still a massive psychological blow to the Confederacy. And it also gave many Federals a new moral reason to fight. And it also inspired numerous slaves to flee towards Union lines, though they had been doing this all along. Another major consequence of this battle is that England and France were now much less likely to join the Confederacy, especially after the Emancipation Proclamation. Lastly, photographers working for Matthew Brady took pictures of the rotting, bloated bodies. In the next month, Brady exhibited his, quote, Dead of Antietam in his New York City studio. This brought the war into the very drawing rooms of the North, and the images of the dead shocked Northern crowds. This was new in the history of the United States. Remember, we live in a world of YouTube, newscasts, documentaries, and cell phone coverage. They had none of that. Now, they are seeing death and destruction in ways which they had never experienced before. And it also changed the way Americans thought of death. Prior to this, Americans always dreamed of what was called the good death, passing in the comfort of one's home, surrounded by friends and family. But now, countless thousands are dying horrible deaths in the midst of battle and being thrown into mass graves. This will have a profound consequence on the psychology of Americans for generations. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Army of Deliverance. Now before you continue, I want you to click on the hyperlink on Army of Deliverance, and it was going to take you to Disney's The Prince of Egypt, and I want you to listen to the song and then come back. Okay, so you've come back. What do you think the point of me doing that is? It is because I am not so subtly linking the plight of the Hebrews of old in Egypt to the plight of enslaved African Americans in the South. Now, going forward. Remember that this war starts out as a war for union, not to end slavery. But over time, it is morphed into this through military necessity and the sacrifice of brave African Americans. Now, the following quote will illustrate how even Lincoln was noncommittal about ending slavery because of politics and the necessity of keeping the border states in the Union. Writing to the editor of the New York Herald Tribune in the summer of 1862, Lincoln said, quote, My paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not to either save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. End quote. Despite this public declaration, Lincoln had already privately confided to Northern politicians like Charles Sumner that he would, quote, I would do it if I were not afraid that half the officers would fling down their arms and three more states would rise, end quote. As the war progressed, the Confederate resistance intensified, 
and the North sought to take away slavery and enslaved labor as a tool for the Confederate war effort. More importantly, at every step, African Americans self-emancipated themselves by escaping into Union lines. This required a political solution to a military problem. What do you do with these escaped slaves? Especially when their owners return and ask for these people back, claiming to be loyal citizens. The first measure the U.S. Congress used to answer this question was called the Second Confiscation Act, passed on July 17, 1862. It forbade U.S. soldiers from returning runaway slaves to their lawful owners even if there was evidence that the slave owner was a loyal citizen and not a Confederate. This elicited opposition from the North and the South, but was useful in keeping slaves out of the Southern war effort. It also said slaves could be taken as, quote, contraband, end quote, of war, basically using the slave owner's argument against them that these men were property, and thus could be used against them due to the international rules of war. The next major step by Congress was the Militia Act, and this authorized African Americans to work as war laborers for the U.S. government and the armed forces. As a result, they built fortifications, served as cooks, laundresses, and other important camp functions. Another major step was an executive action by Lincoln called the Emancipation Proclamation, delivered on September 22, 1862, but it would not take effect until January 1, 1863. It said that all slaves were freed in states under the rebellion. So clearly, this does not apply to the border states of Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, and Maryland, which did own slaves, but were not in rebellion. So in a way, this act does nothing. Lincoln has no more authority to free the slaves in the Confederacy than he does to free the serfs in Russia. However, it did allow the raising of African-American troops in those areas, and many slaves understood what this meant for them, their freedom, if they could attain it. And as a result, tens of thousands of more slaves fled to Union lines to support the Union war effort. And I want to give you a human example of what one of these individuals did. So let's look at the former slave, Robert Smalls. Smalls was a slave in South Carolina in 1862. He was the pilot of a Confederate transport called the CSS Planter. But Smalls hatched a plot where he and his black crew would commandeer the ship while the white crew was asleep or drunk, and he sailed them and their families to the Union blockade around Charleston Harbor. After that, he went on to serve in the Union Navy, and later in the Army, seeing at least 15 separate engagements. After the war, Smalls founded the Republican Party of South Carolina and was elected as a congressman to the House of Representatives during Reconstruction. Smalls was the last black congressman from that district of South Carolina until 2010. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the long arm of history and an example of the bravery and leadership of numerous African Americans during the Civil War. As I said before, the Emancipation Proclamation allowed the Union to raise black regiments, and one of the most famous of these units is called the 54th Massachusetts, led by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Shaw was the son of a Massachusetts abolitionist, and the 54th had African American men from Massachusetts, Kentucky, South Carolina, and elsewhere. These men suffered horrid discrimination, harsh punishments, racist officers, 
and substantially lower pay. As a result of their lower pay, they boycotted until Congress rectified the issue. Part of the problem is that many whites did not think that blacks could be good soldiers, and so it would take the immense bravery and sacrifice of black men in order to prove themselves equal to whites. And the best example of this is the Battle of Battery Wagner in July of 1863. The 54th Massachusetts charged a large artillery fort near Charleston, South Carolina, and nearly penetrated the rebel defenses. But they were repulsed with horrid casualties, suffering about 50% losses as a result. Nevertheless, they proved their bravery under fire. And William Harvey Kearney, a black sergeant's actions, were so gallant that he was recommended for the Medal of Honor, but it took 37 years before he was finally awarded it in 1900. This and countless other examples slowly convinced many whites that blacks were praiseworthy soldiers and some even began to think that they might make good citizens. So, the self-emancipation efforts of African Americans, the Confiscation Acts, the Emancipation Proclamation, combined with the Militia Act, ultimately led to 200,000 black soldiers to serve in the Union Army and Navy, making up nearly 10% of all Union armed forces. This is an army of deliverance, the army of Moses, to free their people. Why is that not the most popular memory or aspect of the Civil War? Why isn't it that this memory dominates? And why are there barely any monuments to black Civil War veterans? The answer is politics and more on that later. But there's one last point we need to make. All of these actions by the federal government, and Lincoln's administration in particular, were taken as war measures, which means they were necessitated by the exigencies of war. Lincoln knew that the courts would probably tear through them upon the end of the conflict, so a constitutional amendment will be required to protect the gains of freedom. More on that later. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Union Defeats. In December of 1862, General Ambrose Burnside proposed to attack Lee's army across the Rapidan River at Fredericksburg. Burnside wanted to cross the river with pontoon bridges and then assault Lee's forces outside of town. But the War Department was too slow in getting him his bridges. And Burnside refused to alter his plan and waited over a week to make his crossing. When he did, from December 11th to the 12th, his army was sniped at by troops hiding in town, and a rutting street battle ensued. The next day, Union troops marched over a mile of open ground to attack Lee's troops behind a stone wall on the high ground of Marie's Heights. The U.S. troops were shot down in scores, and charge after charge failed to dislodge the rebels. Many U.S. troops were caught near the wall and spent the night in the frigid cold, laying on the bodies of their dead comrades as rebel bullets smashed into their corpses. In one notable episode, a Confederate trooper took water to many wounded Federals, but dozens perished that night from their wounds. A withdrawal was finally called the next day, and the Union Army limped back across the Rapidan after losing 12,000-plus soldiers to barely 5,000 Confederate casualties. It was an absolute debacle, and Burnside was soon replaced. By 1863, Lee was calling his army invincible, and he believed they could do anything. After Burnside was sacked, he was replaced by Fighting Joe Hooker, 
a hard-drinking and politicking general who reorganized the army, gave them corps badges as signs of honor and camaraderie, and prepared for the next campaign. Hooker wanted to perform a large turning maneuver and catch Lee's army from behind, but he was too slow in getting his men underway, and when he finally got near Chancellorsville Courthouse, he remarkably did not advance, giving Lee the initiative. From May 1st to the 5th, 1863, Lee divided his outnumbered army three times and defeated the Army of the Potomac at Chancellorsville. It was arguably his greatest victory, resulting in 17,000 Union casualties to Lee's own 12,000. When Lincoln received news of the disaster, he reportedly said, quote, My God, my God, what will the country say? End quote. Lee's masterpiece included some bad news. They suffered 22% casualties, including 12 brigade commanders and the death of Stonewall Jackson. Lee stated, He has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right. Despite the casualties, Lee and his troops remained dangerously overconfident, setting the stage for Gettysburg. Please advance to the next slide entitled, A Universe of Battle. Lee still believed he could score a decisive victory that might end the war and secure Confederate independence. Lee launched a bold plan to raid the North again, this time all the way into Pennsylvania and maybe even capture the state capital. Lee thought he would have more time after the U.S. defeat, but the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade, moved quickly to catch up to Lee in Pennsylvania. The two forces collided with one another at the busy market town of Gettysburg. Fighting broke out when a Confederate division wandered into town on July 1st looking for supplies and ran into some Union cavalry under General John Buford. The Union cavalry held the Confederate advance up for hours before being reinforced by members of John Reynolds' 1st Corps. The fighting was going well for the Union until Reynolds was killed by a rebel sharpshooter. Then, Confederate forces, marching in from the north, turned the Federal flank and sent them fleeing south through town. Lee ordered his subordinates to take the hills to the south of the town, quote, if practicable, and as a result, his generals did not push their assault and gave the Union a strong position on the high ground. By the morning of July 2nd, the Army of the Potomac resembled a giant fish hook and was positioned on the high ground. Meade had assembled 80,000 troops to Lee's 75,000. On July 2nd, Lee ordered attacks against both Union flanks anchored on Culp's Hill and Little Round Top. Little Round Top's extreme flank was protected by a single regiment, the 20th Maine, under the command of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. As a brigade of Alabamians charged up the hill over and over again, the 20th Maine held out for hours, but ran low on ammunition. Chamberlain remembered later, quote, A critical moment has arrived, and we cannot remain as we are no longer. We must advance or retreat. It must not be the latter. But how can it be the former? Chamberlain then said to his men, quote, Stand firm, ye boys from Maine, for not once in a century are men permitted to bear such responsibility for freedom and justice, for God and humanity, as are now placed upon you. End quote. Chamberlain ordered his men to fix bayonets, and when the rebels attacked for the last time, his men charged downhill 
and captured hundreds of prisoners. The fighting was equally frantic on Culp's Hill, and after a day of fighting, the flanks barely held, and both sides had been badly damaged. This set up the Army of Northern Virginia for its date with destiny. On July 3rd, Lee ordered a frontal assault against the Union Center on Cemetery Ridge. Lee figured, since both flanks had been reinforced, the center would be weak. General George Pickett's Virginia Division, which had not fought during the first two days, spearheaded the Confederate attack. After a massive bombardment by Confederate artillery, 13,500 Confederates marched over a mile of open ground. But the Union was ready, as Meade had guessed that the Confederates would attack his center and had reinforced his position. Pickett's charge, dubbed by a Richmond newspaper, was a Confederate disaster. The men were decimated by artillery fire, and when they reached the stone wall defended by Union soldiers, 2,000 muskets went off at once, and entire companies disappeared. The rebels reached the stone wall in only one place, before being driven back and captured. The leader of that assault, General Lou Armistead, perished while attempting to capture a Union battery. In total, Lee lost 26 of 40 field officers in Pickett's division alone, 11 of 15 regimental commanders, and the entire attacking force suffered 50% casualties. Both sides watched each other that night, but on July 4th, Lee retreated across the Potomac, back into Virginia, and Meade let him leave, which infuriated Lincoln. But in reality, Meade's men were probably in no condition to give chase. The total casualties after three days of battle were 23,000 Federal and 28,000 Confederate casualties. The Union had achieved a great victory, and another one was taking place out west. The same day that Lee retreated, on July 4th, Independence Day, was the culmination of a fight to take Vicksburg, Mississippi. By the summer of 1862, Union forces had seized control of most of the Mississippi River. The only significant Confederate stronghold left on the river was at Vicksburg, a.k.a. the Gibraltar of the Confederacy. The city was situated on a river bluff, defended by heavy guns. The Union Navy had failed to capture it, and it became Ulysses S. Grant's responsibility in the fall of 1862. For nine months, Grant tried a variety of approaches, all of which ultimately failed. So in a brilliant move, he traveled along the western bank of the Mississippi River. He crossed downriver of Vicksburg and sent a small Confederate army scurrying back to the town. Grant then took the road less traveled, doing a large turning movement marching around Vicksburg and capturing several towns, including the state capital of Jackson. Grant then defeated the Confederates at the Battle of Champion Hill in Big Black River, and by mid-June 1863, Grant had surrounded Vicksburg with 77,000 men who dug 12 miles of earthworks around the city. For 46 days, Union cannons and gunboats pounded the town, which had 25,000 Confederate troops and 5,000 civilians holed up inside. Starving civilians ate cats and rats, and eventually moved into dugout caves along the river bluff. On July 4th, the Confederates in town finally surrendered, the same day that Lee had retreated from Gettysburg. Thus, the summer of 1863 was a turning point in the Civil War. 
all hopes of foreign intervention were gone. Lee's army had suffered horrific casualties and could not launch major offensives, and Union forces were on the march, racking up victories. There is a lot of popular memory regarding Gettysburg. It is always talked about as the turning point of the war, and while very important, it pales in comparison to the capture of Vicksburg. Vicksburg severed the Confederacy in two. It stopped the western states of supplying the eastern states, and with Union forces freed up, they could be sent to other theaters of war. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Gettysburg Address. On November 19th, the country and posterity joined a discussion about something higher, about the meaning of sacrifice and freedom in this country. Lincoln and 15,000 people traveled to Gettysburg to attend the dedication of a new national cemetery, where Lincoln gave his two-minute Gettysburg Address. Now, I have linked the Gettysburg Address on the PowerPoint, so I want you to go listen to the video while reading Lincoln's words. Okay, are you back? That is one of the greatest speeches in American history, though Lincoln at the time thought it was a failure. In this speech, Lincoln combined the cause of emancipation with the cause of union. In many ways, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address parallels Pericles' funeral addresses during the Peloponnesian War. Both acknowledged their revered predecessors, fourscore and seven years ago. Both praised the uniqueness of the state's commitment to democracy, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Both men addressed the difficulty of the speaker on such an occasion. We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate this hallowed ground. Both exhorted the survivors to emulate the deeds of the dead. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the great task remaining before us. In both contrasted the efficacy of words with deeds. The brave men, living and dead who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. End quote. The point is that this is one of America's greatest speeches, combining the cause of emancipation with the cause of liberty and asking all of us to remember the deeds of the dead. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.